Hello, and welcome to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your very favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, I am talking to Joe Rake. Joe is an actor, director, and playwright who has been living and working in New York City his whole life. Yes, he worked as a baby. You got to start early in this town. He is the founder and artistic director of Occupy Verona, which has produced flash mob style Shakespeare performances around the city. He has most recently been writing plays for the socially isolated script readings and appearing on the Zoom sitcom Dead Enders. Hey, Joe, how are you today? Hey, Abby. I'm great. It's great to be here. It's really good to see you because I have not seen you since well before the before times, I think. Yeah. Um, although I have been thinking about you and following you, of course, uh, do, doing doing great things with, uh, with your time. <laughs> no, same and ditto. And just now that uh, the weather is no longer surface of the sun inhospitable. I look forward to more of those socially distanced park hangs that all the cool kids have been doing in the in the verdant pasture between us. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um the the scene, so to speak, uh, <laughs> has changed rapidly in twenty twenty. Been happening with the youngins. I did I did make it out there for like one picnic in the last six months. And what was kind of amazing is this social culture that's popped up in the middle of Prospect Park because it was just like a random Saturday, not even like federal holiday Saturday. I have not run into any of these roving bartenders that I hear about who just bring coolers of of I ran into three. I I ran into three. Maybe you weren't in the right pasture. I don't know where they are. They're, they're, you, you can't pin them down. They are shadows passing in the night. They just come out of nowhere to offer you to, to offer you substances and then fade into the shadows from whence they came. Maybe they just think I'm a narc. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. You have a beard and you wear plaid. You don't, you're, you're like prime roving exactly. bartender. Exactly. Target. Come find me. Prospect Park <laughs> well, bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> My vast audience of Prospect Park bartenders, you've been told. Oh, is that happening on your side or my side? I think it is. It's uh, it's like it's air conditioning fluid that's landing on my air conditioner. There's nothing we can do about that. So I'm just going to that, it, that's it should stop in a second. No, that's quarantine, baby. We're just going to roll with it. <laughs> I'm. I'm I'm both so excited to get into this topic with you and also so fearful because this is one of my very favorite, most formative, beloved things. And I know that I know that the whole purpose of this podcast, like the whole message the whole mission statement I have in my head is it's possible to let your love and nostalgia coexist with your criticism and and your critical thought. I know this, and now I have to put that to the test against something that lives inside of me, and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a thorny, thorny day. I, I want it on the record that you made this happen because there, there was a choice. Totally we, we could have done Goonies or something. <laughs> listen, <and laughs> listen, we could have done Goonies, but I asked you which thing gives you the biggest yikes and which thing do you have the most formative relationship to, and this was the top. This was this was That's the top true. one. That's true. Yeah, uh, I I would say I have the most formative relationship to this property 
than maybe any other thing, any, any other work of art, certainly. So how old were you when you first encountered Lord of the Rings? So I first, well, I first encountered Tolkien and Middle Earth uh, when I was about 10, I'd say, is when I read The Hobbit for the first time. I had seen the classic uh, cartoon from the 70s many times uh-huh. as a child, uh, beautiful animation and songs and John Huston's voice as Gandalf. Uh, so like that, that was probably my first, first, uh, dip in, but I read the Hobbit, uh, as a child and I, I liked it a lot, but the Lord of the Rings was very daunting. I've always been kind of, uh, had, uh, struggles reading, uh, as a younger person. And still today, um, I have, uh, some reading issues, but um, my sister had read it, and uh, my dad finally got me to agree to read it uh, on the condition that he would read it to me first. Uh, so the first time I uh, consumed the trilogy Lord of the Rings was when my dad read it to me. I was about 12. How's how's your dad as a as a storybook reader when he reads aloud to his children? Probably one of like the top three on the planet. Like it's it's mm-hmm. like telling stories to children is what he does for a living for the most part. He runs uh, an after school program uh, based in uh, like theology and uh, and you know stories from uh, the Old Testament. Uh, and so yeah, he. And and he's had a love for Lord of the Rings, you know, for his entire life. So he definitely uh, encouraged all of his kids to read it. Um, and uh, he was happy to, you know, spend that time, spend that time reading, you know, a chapter to me a night as, you know, a 12 year old. And I'd sit wrapped most of the time. Sometimes I'd zone out. Um, I mean... It is it is rife with opportunities to zone out. Yeah, I, yeah. The, I yeah. find the first time you read it, it's it, it can be a little hard to get past uh, the the vivid descriptions of the natural life and the halls mm-hmm. and the you know and the stonework things like and that. And the history, mm-hmm. the the random tangents into a history to which you don't belong. Yeah. The fifth time reading it, those are the things I devour the most greedily. I'm like, exactly. ooh, ooh we're getting into some flowers now. After finishing it with my dad, I uh, immediately needed to read it myself. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> it took me, I think the first time I read it, it took me the better part of a year uh, to get to get through the whole thing. Um, but I did... And I would, um, I would go back to it sometimes, but I, uh, and I'd think about it a lot, but I didn't, uh, come back to it in a real way, uh, until again, yeah, the movies were coming out. And so, um, I was in high school when the first movie came out and Mm -hmm. I remember my best friend at the time, uh, decided to read the books beforehand and I said to myself, I've already read it. Uh, it had been some years at this point, but I, I've read it already. So I'm 
excited about these movies. They look incredible. I remember that feeling there was this kind of inevitability that they were going to be good. I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't imagine a, a scenario where they weren't going to be incredible. That's how I remember this. But I, I didn't feel like I needed to read the book again. As soon as I went on opening night to see Fellowship of the Ring, as soon as I got home, I pulled out the book and started reading it again. And I was back mm-hmm. into the, the, the fray of it. Um, I read it about once a year starting then while the movies were coming out and for a couple of years after. Mm-hmm. Um, usually like in the summer uh, when sometimes like I'd go on trips either with my family or uh, one time I, I went as a college trip to uh, Mexico um, and I would, I would like to read it while traveling uh, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, it's such a traveling book, it's such a traveling book. And, you know, I would find myself wearing Tevas going on hikes and <laughs> I, that's, that was it. I was a hobbit, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's, no. that's all I needed. I think I've probably, I, I've lost count at this point, uh, but that's not to say because I've read it countless times. If I had to, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that I've read it five times total at this point. Uh, You and I might have some very similar history with these properties, I think. So I grew up, my mom uh, was sort of the first generation Lord of the Rings fan in in our house. You know, she, she, in the, in the kind of 1960s, 70s, Lord of the Rings uh, explosion, that's where she found it. She like, she she told me once that she and her best friend in, might've been high school, it might've been college, they learned elvish characters and would use them as their secret code to pass notes to each other. Oh man. Um, yeah. Yeah, and growing up we had like two or three different copies of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit rattling around the house at all times in various states. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, so my brothers definitely got there first. I remember my eldest brother going through a hardcore Hobbit phase. Um and so it was kind of like this, like I, I, I viewed it kind of as a like a rite of passage of some kind in my family that at some point I will read The Hobbit and, 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 and I will join the ranks of the people who understand this thing. It was really special. Um, I read The Hobbit in the fifth grade, I want to say. And uh I read like a school library copy that I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes because it's just the most hilarious looking copy in the world. It's just, it's so, so hideous and cheap and low rent and I <laughs> loved it. Um, and then I read, I did read Lord of the Rings because I started reading it when the movie was announced because I knew I was going to want right. to watch it and I knew I was going to want to share it with my mom. Mm-hmm. And I was very hardcore the kid who had to read the book before I saw the movie. It's only mm-hmm. fairly recently that I've given myself permission to let that go sometimes. Um, so I have some really strong feelings about reading those books the first time, especially especially Two Towers. Two Towers was a was a formative 
growth. Have I ever told you this story? No, I don't think so. Oh God, it's it's like it's, it's one of it's it's one of my favorite reading experiences of of my life. So I was reading. I was nearing the end of Two Towers. Um, I would have been in sixth or seventh grade, I think. And uh, it was already past midnight because I knew I was nearing the end of the book, and I couldn't stop then because the end of the, the end of Two Towers is is Kirith Ungol and yeah. Shelob. Uh, yeah. It's it's the, it's harrowing. It's uh, Frodo and Sam, yeah. the most intense. Frodo and Sam in the tunnel in the tunnel, and Gollum has led them to their death, and they're being chased by a giant spider. And what's going to happen? <laughs> and I couldn't go to bed, and it already felt like a weird rite of passage into adulthood because I was awake past midnight and no one else was awake in the house. And it was like one of the first times that had happened to me. Hmm. And I'm sitting there in my room in the dark and uh, massive spoilers, massive spoilers for Two Towers for anyone who's weirdly listening to this, (laughs) not being familiar with these properties. But, you know, at the end of that battle, Shelob kills Frodo. There's like two pages, the way it's written, mm-hmm. where Frodo is just straight up dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sam reacts to it as if he is dead. And, 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 and Tolkien does not pull any punches. He does not give you any reason to expect that Frodo is not dead. And I remember reading this in disbelief and like starting to cry. And like this little Fred Savage voice in the back of my head said, Frodo can't be dead. That wouldn't be fair. <laughs> Who kills Humperdinck? <laughs> <laughs> Who kills Humperdinck? And and I was watching Sam react to this and Sam taking the ring and Sam picking up the stuff and getting ready to finish the mission and thinking, that's not what happens. That can't be what happens. And then this other voice in my head said, this is a grown-up book. It doesn't have to be fair. And then this third voice in my head said, from now on, nothing in your life ever has to be fair <laughs> ever again. <laughs> Like, and at that moment, I truly became a woman, Joe. I grew wow. up like full literary bat mitzvah. That is all so alone. real. That is so real. Oh, God. Oh, it was hard, hardcore. I mean, especially just um, seeing that moment, you know, how the, the book is, is done from so many POVs. Mm-hmm. That moment being from Sam's point of view. Uh, and yeah. experiencing it through him, so devastating and like and painful. Yeah, yeah. It was really the whole. Exp- I mean, I don't know if this was the first thing I read where there were multiple multiple heroes uh, and multiple trajectories that you became equally invested in. Because at a certain mm-hmm. point, it becomes about, you've got Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn off right. here, yeah. and you've got Merry and Pippin off here, and you've got Frodo and Sam off here, and then those split again and again. Um, but it was the most impactful of those for me. Because mm-hmm. it, it, you know, The Hobbit is very much one unified story about one group of people. And Lord of the, uh, Fellowship of the Ring starts off that way as well. And there's this sort of, for, for me, there was this sort of growth process going through it, of, of it changing from one type of story, from this adventure story, into this personal development story, into mm. this war saga. I don't know. How, how, how did Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit hit you differently, if at all? So um, I think... 
the one thing that you mentioned uh, is uh, the difference in that the Hobbit really just follows the one character uh, and mm-hmm. that one journey through to the end, and you know the people he meets and the friends he makes and the fight and you know the fights he witnesses, um, and. Yeah, the the immediate sense of that once two towers begins and you're not with Frodo and Sam anymore. Yeah. And and you just have to kind of get it like it's a kind of a grieving process just then where, you know, you're following uh, your heroes and 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 then the, the next chapter starts and they're just not there anymore Mm -hmm. i could only imagine if these books were coming out with like you know years in between them and i wasn't Mm. able to just you know reach for the next one as soon yeah as i was done um i'd say that uh yeah that first of all made it seem so much bigger and Mm -hmm. made the world so much more analogous to, you know, the world outside of my own window, that there's so many different things happening, so many uh, battles being drawn uh, from so many different people that, and also um, I think one of the core differences is that Bilbo in his heart, always wanted to leave, always wanted the adventure, uh, always, you know, needed to, you know, th- that classic hero story. There's something different about me. I have to go out and do the thing. But with Frodo, you're following someone for whom it's the opposite. All Frodo yeah. wants or cares about is, you know, his life, his home, his friends, um, but he has to go on an even longer, deeper, more dangerous adventure because yeah. he's the only one who can. Frodo is in a lot of ways the the victim of his own sense of morality, because if he was a more selfish man, he has so many opportunities to say, I've done my bit. I'm going home now. Right. And, and there are people who want this thing. Mm-hmm. There are people who, you know, will actively try to take this mission from me. And that is the reason none of them can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, 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 strength is, his strength is that he knows and believes that this has to be done. And he does not want to be the one to do it, which is exactly what makes him the best, right. the best suited to do the job. The way the the story resolves itself mm. with, you know, the Dark Lord being defeated, but Frodo unable to return. That, I think, was something I was not prepared for. It, um, it, it, it makes complete logical sense to me because of, you know what he's been through and the the nature of the evil that he had to live with and how you know he 
and, and, and you know, I, 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 I buy all of the, all of the magical reasoning for it, but that wasn't something I was used to in adventure stories. No, I remember my first time through having a, a, a huge problem with that plot element. Cause you know, I was probably 13 when I read yeah. that one. Um, like, you know, it made me angry in the same sort of Fred Savagey, Princess Bridey <laughs> way of, but why can't this wrap up nicely? Why can't right. everything go back to the way it was? And there was a part of me that thought maybe this is just here to make to make people cry. Maybe this is just <laughs> here. Like, why else would you? Do- I didn't understand. It, it's such an adult plot element. This idea, mm-hmm. it, it's such an it's such an adult response to uh, this whole journey that going through, when you go through a heavily traumatic event and you come out the other side, there is no going back to before. There's only coming out the other side. And what you come out with on the other side is inherently different and it makes you uniquely ill-suited to what was before. And I still constantly have changing perspectives, I think, on what Frodo's ending means to me personally and means in the context of the story and like what kind of an allegory it is. It's so real and so difficult. And again, it's one of those, you know, grown up books don't have to be fair because yeah. life, life doesn't wrap up that way. And it really is one of those books for me that every time I come back to, I get something else out of it, both because I have changed as a person, and so it it, the, the, it 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 reflects off of me in different ways than it did the last time. But also because it is one of those books that's so big and deep yeah. that uh, you can choose a different element to kind of live in each time. Like the last time I read it, I remember I was really, really interested in the lore and the history and the songs, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. stuff that yeah. you, right. yeah, the stuff that. You, because the first time I read it, I'm a completionist at heart, and I was trying to read every word, and my mother had to give me permission of, no, no, so no, the first time it. you read it, <laughs> yeah, first time you read it, you're just reading for story, it's okay, you can skim. You can skip the Council of Elrond altogether if you want to. <laughs> um, the Council so I did. of Elrond. God, so that chapter goes on for years and then goes back in time for millennia. <laughs> it's the worst. Uh, you know, and- the second and third time I was, because you know where the story is going, you're not in a rush to get there. So it's much easier to take your time. And the last time I remember just really living in the reality of it as, cause it's, it's it, the, the action of Lord of the Rings take, takes place in a world that has already fallen. It's so often it spends so much time referring back to things aren't like they were before back in mm-hmm. the golden age. And right. here's this monument we're sleeping under that is already decaying and falling apart, but it's a monument to this guy. And I'm going to sing mm-hmm. you the song of his deeds that most people have forgotten. It's this very, I read this quote somewhere that uh, I'm, I'm going to find and drop in the show notes so people can read it where, where Tolkien in some letter, he said that what he was setting out to do with middle earth was 
He didn't want to create a world where the audience could see everything. He wanted it to be a magical world viewed through the mist, like Avalon disappearing into the distance, where you know that there was something beautiful and real and true and complete there, if only you could get back to it and see it. And it's like it's it's part of what makes Lord of the Rings such a and Middle Earth such a world, is that there's this sense there's this sense that there's more beyond the horizon that yeah. you're you're not quite going to see. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible. Confession, I have had a full-on case of reader's block pretty much continuously since March of 2020. On top of that, after a full day of working from home, complete with Zoom calls, sound editing, spreadsheets, graphic editing, and hours of staring at my computer, the idea of relaxing by staring at another screen doesn't sound relaxing. Lucky for me, I can find the perfect entertainment and escape through Audible, with thousands of titles spanning audiobooks, theatrical recordings, guided meditations, and more. Audible has something for pretty much any mood and any moment I might find myself in. Listeners of this podcast can get a free 30-day trial, meaning one free credit to spend however you'd like, by going to audibletrial.com slash cringebenefits today. For a fanciful escape from the world outside your window, I recommend you check out Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. It's a Eastern European take on traditional Germanic fairy tales, but with some badass heroines who aren't afraid to get fucking angry. Seriously, it is wonderful. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash cringebenefits to start your free trial today. Lord of the Rings exists in my brain as I mean the book and the movie are separate entities and I get separate things for them from mm -hmm. them but the the movie is such a skillful page to screen adaptation that uh they coexist in my brain as part of the same umbrella as opposed to other properties where I kind of abandon the movie in favor of the book you know I think so too I think they complement each other um, mm -hmm. I think that one of the most brilliant things the movie did was what uh, was to really dive deep and seek out um, some of the most iconic artwork that has come from the series uh, and is you know already so recognized and beloved all over the world, and we we, we had been making connections with those images, people who loved the books, uh, and, you know, to pay homage to them and to recreate them in some ways, uh, I think was just a, a brilliant step and certainly helped me along in just saying, yes, this is right. This is as it yeah. should be. Although on that note, something I appreciated that the movie does is it makes Every place where it makes a cut has a purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, I am part of that vanishing tribe of people who freaking love Tom Bombadil. Yes, but Tom I love Bombadil. Yes, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. But he is <laughs> absolutely a literary device, and right. he d doesn't belong in the movie. It would slow down the action. Uh, it, we don't. We don't want to focus on the allegory of Tom Bombadil as the vanishing pagan innocence of the world that has no place in this future industrialized society that's oh, but, that's coming out but but yes to positive masculinity yes to mm -hmm. uh, uh you know just like a beautifully explicitly sexual relationship 
between <laughs> two people. Uh, <laughs> you know, the only one in the in Middle Earth, as far as I can tell. One hundred percent. Part of what's so great about him is that he's he absorbs so many different allegories and mythological functions, and he purposely rejects so many of them. Mm-hmm. And for me, Tom Bombadil is uh, who 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 also ends ends his episode by saying, "Yeah, I'm getting out of Middle Earth too." He's, I I I think. Tom Bombadil is sort of the spirit of everything Frodo won't be able to access at the end of the story in mm. a way. He is that innocence and that purity and that right. that um, green spirit of the world. I think that if there was any kind of North Star to Tolkien writing these books, especially it is that reverence for you know life in all its forms and yeah. for the environment uh and you know the the forests that he knew where he grew up uh things like that every uh every people um that is you know considered you know good or on on the on the light side yeah. or whatever um, you can you can identify them by the way they uh, connect and relate to the land. Yes, I, I I think it's very likely he would not put it this way himself. But J.R.R. Tolkien has a very pagan sensibility, and the animus that he imbues all living things with, and the way that he reveres uh, he reveres the, the the coexistence with nature. Like part of why the hobbits, the, the 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 hobbits are so uplifted, is that they are humbly they're 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 kind of humbly and without any pretension embodying all of these all of these traits. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you were. If you were of any uh, culture or race in Middle Earth, who would you be? I mean, I feel like I would be a hobbit more than anything because, uh, you know, the, it it seems like I could most easily kind of slip into that life. Of course. Um, but someone asked me recently, where would I, where would I want to live of all the places? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was kind of weird and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I didn't even have to think before saying Brie. Why Brie? Uh, well, oh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's cause I'm a city kid, but like, I think about the Shire or Rivendell and it's like, you know, very, very nice, very sort of. Uh, idyllic, but I, I don't know. I want to be where the where the action is, where like you know, I'll, I'll I'll just walk down the walk down the mud road, go to the prancing pony, have a drink <laughs> with my friends, you know. But maybe there'll not, be some music. Not that much action, though, right? Because Bree no. is still pretty rural. It's just like yeah. it's a it's a crossroads, whereas the Shire is a pocket. Like the right. people don't pass through the Shire. You go That's to true. the Shire. Or you come from the Shire. Well, that's but- the thing. If I lived in Bree, I could, you know, very easily take a nice couple of days trip 
into the Shire, see some sure. of my Hobbit friends. <laughs> I, I think I would I, I would want to live like in the kind of crummy slum just across the river from the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect that at all. I. Because when you were asking yourself that question, I thought I too, I, I too would want to be a hobbit because they have like mm-hmm. the 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 most comfortable, the most comfortable and idyllic life. You know, they're 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 depicted as loving, good books, good food, good drinks, good friends. Those are their things, and they want nothing more than to be left alone in their beautiful their their beautiful farmland home, and. Uh, I know for a fact that this is the sort of thing that after a lot of real life application, I would find exhausting because it's, it's such, <laughs> it's such small town life. Everybody knows you and your business right. and everybody can trace your genealogy back five generations. And like, if you do anything, someone will say, oh, you know why you leave your elbows on the table? Because your great aunt Basilda left her yes. elbows on the table. It would be exhausting. It would be. <laughs> I, I feel like I'd want to be a hobbit but live in Gondor, where that okay. excellent, where that excellent library that Gandalf goes to yes. to go like right. learn the history of the Ring is right. Like Gondor is where most of the history is. I want to yeah. be where most of the records of society exist. Okay, sure, yeah. But I want to have home and family and Hobbiton that I can go off to when I when I need to escape my hardcore city life. When uh, the the Big Apple Gondor existence gets too much for me, I mean, if you're if you're okay traveling for a few months to get there, I'm thinking I mean, about geography. Listen, like, you I know, breeze kind of in the middle of things. <laughs> I don't need to be. I don't need to be constrained by your. That's the other thing is that this is one of the things that's kind of wonderful but mind blowing about this story is that this is a story where all of the travel takes months because it's mostly dudes on foot like for most of yeah for most of the story they don't nobody even has anything to ride like i'm thinking of the whole epic chase scene between when the uruk eyes have marion marion pippin and uh legolas gimli and aragorn are chasing them and it's literally and that's the first time they're going at a clip before then they were just strolling (laughs) Before then, they were just moseying, trying to get there secretly and slowly, so Sauron doesn't come them, exactly. doesn't see them coming. Them at a chase is guys on foot running as fast as they can for right. days. Yeah, it's a it's a strange world out there. So, so, some horses would have helped in in those situations. Horses are clearly a high-priced commodity that yeah. even Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, and once and future king of Gondor, cannot afford. Who makes best friends with every horse he encounters. He's a literal horse whisperer. Yes. I was watching the scene in Two Towers where, uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I don't think this comes from the book. I think this is pure, pure no, Jackson invention. Pure Peter Jackson. <laughs> pure Peter Jackson. But there's a scene where he's in the stables and they're bringing in the horse that belonged to Theodred, the dead, the dead prince. And everyone's like, oh, don't bother with that horse. He's half wild. And Viggo Mortensen, real life Aragorn. Starts, <laughs> real life Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> real life Aragorn Viggo Mortensen just starts like speaking Elvish to this horse and immediately makes best friends with him. Like just Aragorn, original horse girl, original horse whisperer. Yeah, the, definitely. The, <laughs> definitely 
definitely the Mary Sue of this whole story. If we're going to use, if we're going to use those tropes. Oh yeah. There's, there could be no other, I would say. I don't say Mary Sue, by the way, as an insult. Uh, I'm going to go on a brief tangent here. I may cut this out, but I think it, I think it belongs here because it's, it's for the folks who don't know, Mary Sue is a, is a word that comes out of the fan fiction community as a, uh, title that is appended to characters who pop up in a story. Um, usually they are original characters by they are original characters by the author, usually thinly veiled representations of the author themselves. And they are characters who have a little bit too much magical ability and are a little bit too much beloved by everyone they encounter and are a little bit too much immediately hated by all of the right villains. Um, and get a little bit too much of a happy ending. And what's notable about that uh, trope is the reason that it's called Mary Sue is because it's usually appended to female characters that are created by female authors. Uh, and I, you know, it, 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 it's, it's I'm, I'm going to keep using that word because it means what it means. I don't love the heritage or the etymology of it because the fact is that like that whole thing Mary Sue uh, characters goes all the way back to um, Dante and Dante's Inferno or freaking Aeneid, uh, freaking Aeneas in the Aeneid. Like just the history of, or, or I think you could even I mean, call Odysseus. Something, yeah, so, something I've heard often is that Jesus is a Mary Sue. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's wrong at all. Jesus is a Mary Sue to Old Testament mythology. Um great literature and mythology comes from the idea of mm, what if we put somebody in that was super cool though? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the fact that Aragorn is put in as this dude who uh, is a man, but he's from the, 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 the secret mythical line of Numenor where they live really fucking long and uh, the best and hottest elf maiden is in love with him. And also he can speak to horses. And also he doesn't want to be the king, even though he should be king and he's the best king and he will be king. And also he's a healer because of course, of course he has secret healing abilities and he's the best tactician and all of these things. Aragorn is a badass, but if you list all of his, if you, if you generated his character sheet and brought it to your D and D table, you would get laughed out of laughed yeah. out of the session. <laughs> it would he's be rejected so much. Uh, so I think the time has come, Joe, when okay. did you, when did you start to suspect that uh, there were some elements of Lord of the Rings that were not as noble as the rest of the story, I should say. Um, so I, I I don't know if I could point exactly to a time. I would say, uh, something that I was always kind of a, a concept I was always familiar with was, uh, at least for as long as I was kind of thinking about media so maybe like preteens to teenage years was this concept of tokenism mm. uh, and how, you know, in every cop show, there'd be a token black guy and he would be representing, you know, like all of the black people. And, you know, it, it would probably be stereotypical in some way. And I understood a, that 
this was not a healthy way to address diversity in media mm-hmm. and be that there was not even one of those in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember, you know, I, I'm one of these people when I read a book of which there isn't a movie, which is how I read Lord of the Rings the first time I imagine the characters in my head, but I just make them people who I'd cast in the movie of this. Oh, okay. And that that kind of helps. Uh, and in my mind, Denzel Washington was always Aragorn. Oh, that's fabulous. I think that James Earl Jones was absolutely Saruman, you know, for, oh, for the whole time I was reading it. And, uh, and I, I, I'm not saying that like, you know, I, me, Joe Rake, I was ahead of the curve on that. <laughs> like, sure. Um, but, uh, I understood that this was a flaw, but I didn't consider it at the time something insidious. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that it was maybe part of a larger problem, mm-hmm. which is how I started to consider it in in, in later years. Um, you know, probably after I read it those bunch of times and. Uh, I could see the conversation around race in media starting to change and there being more of a call for accountability in things like this. It made me want to kind of examine the roots of how a story like this would come about and, you know, what it maybe represents about myself and, you know, my own biases in the stories that I uh, consume and the stories that I create as a, as an actor, as a theater person. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, what it says about the creator who I have, you know, lionized uh, mm-hmm. my whole life. So I think, uh, you know, that was, that was when I started to like, maybe, you know, question how okay is this? Yeah. I was I was not as woke as childhood Joe Rake because I'm one of those person. <laughs> no, I'm one of those people who when I I realized this fairly recently about myself. I don't know. When I say fairly recently, like sometime in the last 10 years, it occurred to me that when I read a book, uh, unless I'm told explicitly what the character looks like, I imagine that the character I imagine the characters are white. And that's something that I've wanted to investigate. Does that where does that come from? I mean, in in my limited understanding of how imaginations develop and and all of that stuff, uh, I think it can probably be attributed to the fact that just most of the literature on my shelf as a kid, and embarrassingly, most of the literature on my shelf right now, uh, is by white authors about white experiences, and that certainly. You know, while Tolkien does not go out of his way to tell you these characters are white, he does go out of his way to tell you when characters are not white. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically when he's taught, there are races of men in this story who are fighting on Sauron's side. 
Mm-hmm. And they are the, the uh, I think they're the Hadarim and the Southron men. And I think there's yeah. probably one more. And they're described. The last one is the, the Easterlings. The Easterlings. Yeah. And maybe with the exception of the Easterlings, uh, they are described as dark, swarthy, brown yeah. skin. Sallow skin, slant eyes. Slant eyes. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, Tolkien has said that when he wrote the mythology of Middle Earth, uh, the the mythology slash history of Middle Earth, he's he wasn't seeking to create a magical land from whole cloth that didn't exist. What he's writing is sort of an alternate mytho history of Northern Europe. It's okay. supposed to have existed at an age of this planet that we live on. And the cultures that we live in now are derived from the stories of the Rohirrim and the Numenor and the Hobbits and all of those things. Um, It's once upon a time here. So an argument could be made that, well, he doesn't put black people in this story because he's writing about a time in Northern Europe before Mm -hmm. uh, emigration was a thing and before slave trade was a thing. At the same time, though, but 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 why though? If you're already making up hobbits and Numenor and the Rohirrim, why not make up this other? Why why not make up people of color, noble and laudable people of color with speaking roles in your in your world? This comes um, to what I think the main flaw might be, which is. the the kind of i don't want to say erasure but it is sort of seeing the world the way a lot of us do and mm-hmm. you know it, you were mentioning in mm-hmm. you know your your book collection i yeah. have a similar issue with that of choosing to see the parts of the world that mean the most to you there's a uh, James Baldwin uh, speech, uh, a quote that I'm just going to paraphrase. Uh, I, I don't have it, but it was along the lines of um, he made an example of, uh, you know, someone from a South African planting society. Mm-hmm. How in order for these white South Africans to have some kind of pride and good feeling in the lives that they have and in the communities they have, they have to also accept some sort of pride and good feeling about the way that that was achieved historically. Mm. And in so many cases, the way that that was achieved historically was through uh, denigration, genocide, Mm. sometimes slavery, Mm -hmm. So that is sort of the blinders that people have been living with who don't have that kind of perspective. And Tolkien was, you know, an English man who loved England and England was an empire. You know, yeah. the, 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 the empire he loved did many awful things to many, many people of color. And so I think there is a disconnect there 
what I think is different, um, and I'm not uh, an expert on this in any way, mm -hmm. um, is if we're talking about Lord of the Rings as a story where some races are better than others. Yeah. Um, it's not that simple. I think it's more complicated because uh, something I was reading made the point that he's creating this society in almost a theological sense where yes. it's a hierarchy of beings that has to do with like their divine spirit. I want to start by picking up what you just laid down about the great chain of being, which is a, um, yeah, right. a, a structure, a structure of the world that was prevalent. I, I think it, I, from my reading, it sort of came into English writing and English literature around the medieval times, but I'm the most familiar with it from the work of a scholar named E.M.W. Tilliard and the way he applies it to Shakespeare in a book called The Elizabethan World Picture. Um, and uh, I'll drop the I'll, I'll drop a link to that book in the show notes if I remember to, because I know I've already said I'm going to drop a lot of links in these show notes. Um, but yeah, it is the idea not only that there's God at the top and then angels and then men and then beasts and then at the bottom demons and then underneath that the devil, but also the subdivisions right. of amongst men, there's the division of kings above nobles, above artisans, above peasants, and there's degrees of beasts, like everything, everything has a place in this hierarchy. And it's a uh, he, he very much writes his races in terms of a hierarchy in lots of places. The elves are subdivided into the elves that it, the elves in the Silmarillion, the Valar who, who left to, mm -hmm. uh, to Valinor immediately, not the Valar, the Eldar, you know what? I'm going to get some of <laughs> my, so Tolkien. I'm going to get my <laughs> Tolkien mythology crossed in some places, but, uh, the broad strokes will be correct. Stephen Colbert isn't listening right now, and we can we, we can send an apology. <laughs> if Stephen Colbert is listening and he wants to have an argument with me, I am so here for that. It would make my day. It would make me so happy. Um, but yeah, there are there are the high elves who left Middle Earth to the Grey Haven to to Valinor right, right away, and then there are the elves who stayed who stayed because you know. In Middle Earth, they could be the best of the chain of being, and if they went mm -hmm. to Valinor, they would be at the bottom of all of the elves there. Right, and yeah. there are the divisions of men. There's and Faramir talks about how there's the men of Numenor who are the best men, and then there's like the right. the Twilight races, which are the Rohirrim and the Gondorians, and then there's everyone below that who are the Easterlings, the South, the Southrons, the Hatterim, um, the Woeses, which I'd completely forgotten about until I was. Reading Gan up for this. Gan. Oh God, we got to yeah. talk about that in, in a second because yeah. I want to finish <laughs> this point. Um, even when I, I fundamentally think that Tolkien's racism doesn't come out of a direct antagonism towards races that are different from his, it comes out of the worldview in which he was living. And yeah. uh, that is a worldview that was uh, white exceptionalist I will bring up this um, one quote by N.K. Jemison, which I think uh, really hits the nail on the head, which is uh, she talks about orcs. Um, and I think it was in relation specifically to Tolkien. She said, orcs are fruit of the poison vine that is fear of the other. Yeah. 
I think that's 100% and, correct. Um, so I, th- I think that you're right that uh, what, whatever was within um, his world and his society at the time it found its way into this story. Those prejudices and biases found their way in implicitly for the most part. Um, I think in, you, you'll find in like his earlier works, like the Hobbit, there's a lot more, I'd say anti-Semitic coding with the dwarves, mm-hmm. uh, than there is in his later works. I think he maybe, uh, came to reckon with that in a certain way. I think that he, um, I think, I think he probably was trying to reckon with orcs. He never really came to a, a hundred percent, uh, explanation on where orcs mm-hmm. came from. Yeah. It was always like sort of these hints of, uh, they used to be elves and men, but they were twisted by, Sauron and by Morgoth and into this, into this, these new creatures, um, all, always this idea that they were created by the evil forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a naturally occurring race of right. creatures. But um, then you get into the question of they were created by evil to be evil. Does that necessitate that they are in fact evil are they right you, you get into right. this sort of frankenstein discussion yes. in a way yes um, exactly which is that what dr frankenstein created was monstrous in his eyes and was uh absent absent a certain moral training that he grew up right. with is the creature evil or is the creature a product of his nurturing or lack thereof um yeah you do you 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 do get into the weeds when you create a world in which one of the implicit tenets is that some races are better than others and some are just evil Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i i'll drop this article in the show notes there's a there's a scholarly dissertation by uh this lady named dimitra femi who is a lecturer on fantasy and children's literature at the university university of glasgow and let me just say uh, if if reincarnation is real and i get a second life i i want that to be my life because it just sounds <laughs> it's a great title <laughs> so delightful um and she's brilliant and she goes into some great lengths about uh early iterations of tolkien's middle earth chain of being um, in the early notes of the Silmarillion, which was published later by his son, but the early notes of which predate Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. uh, the orcs are much more in common with demons. And right. we don't tend to ask the question of, okay, so should is it is it wrong for us to hate demons? Did demons choose to be demons? I mean, we, we do now, I guess, because we live in a post-Buffy the Vampire Slayer society. <laughs> Where we get to fall in love and have season-long arcs with demons. <laughs> Absolutely. But the reason that those are compelling is that it subverts the implicit uh, expectation and agreed foundation that, like, demons are just evil. And they're supposed to mm-hmm. just be evil. And they are mm-hmm. there for us to blame all the evils of the world on. That's their job. Um, 
and uh, Dimitri, I, I'm using her full name because I haven't found her title anywhere. So I don't want to call her Dr. Femi if she's not. But you know what? I'm going to because if she's not a doctor, she should be because she's brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, the, the thing like that Dr. That. The, yeah, you know what? It, it's uh, I, I'm giving her a doctorate from the University of Abbey Wild if she doesn't have one already. Um, Dr. Femi gets into this hypothesis that the orcs become problematic when the world of Middle Earth leaves the world of mythology and enters the world of the novel. Because in novels, people have motivations, people have fully fleshed out characters, people have uh, um, their own thought, they have uh, free will in a way that they don't in mythology. Um, they're people, in other words. Yeah, they're people. Yeah. And so the orcs ha have, have thoughts and feelings and arguments. Right. And once you know that, there's a whole world opened up in terms of how we treat them. Um, mm -hmm. There's this, uh, I'm going to go on this tangent just because it makes me laugh. There's this, this meme floating around a series of Tumblr posts, I should, I should say about this quote from the two towers movie where the orcs and the Urukai are fighting over whether or not they get to eat Mary and Pippin. And at one point, one of the orcs says, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. And his use of the word menu implies, <laughs> implies that the orcs of Mordor have a concept of restaurants. And if they have a concept <laughs> of restaurants, you have to make reservations because one does not simply walk in to Mordor. <laughs> Which, which is a total joke, but it also like it opens up some 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 world building concerns of like okay, what is the culture like in Mordor? We don't ever see. Do the orcs have houses? Do they have family units? Do they have friends? Do they have companionship? And, and when the and when the tower falls, all those like startups <laughs> and small orc cafes and restaurants did they just did they just crumble <laughs> into the chasm with everything else no 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 but it's fine because they have return of the king insurance so it's okay <laughs> they're gonna be okay and we have to stop here for time but don't worry joe and i had a lot more to say about lord of the rings and i'm gonna bring that to you next week on the next episode of cringe benefits where we continue the saga of the lord of the rings uh until then you can find joe on the web series dead enders a socially distanced sitcom about a uh, support group for doomsday preppers who find themselves in the middle of the zombie apocalypse you can also find this podcast as always on twitter facebook and instagram Instagram at Cringe Benefits, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild. That's our show. Uh, we will be back next week for more of this childhood favorite and our grown-up regrets. Bye! <laughs>